0: Hi, it's Elise Luna and host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is psychotherapist Galit Atlas, author of Emotional Heritance. We're going to talk about the transmission of intergenerational trauma. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct.
1: When we talk about the ghost of the unsaid, we're talking about the inherited feelings of our parents' unprocessed trauma, where, and the phantoms that lived inside them. We're talking about traumas that our parents and grandparents could not process, and they are transmitted to us in some raw way. And, when, and I quote in the book, uh, Holocaust Survivors, and Maria Torok and Nicholas Abraham who said what haunts us are not the dead but
0: the gaps left within us by the secrets of others. So says psychotherapist Galit Atlas, who has spent her life and career both witnessing and unraveling the ways that the lived and unlived experiences of our ancestors can show up in our own lives. Galit, who is Syrian-Iranian by way of Israel grew up in the midst of trauma, violence that continued to unfold around her against a generational tapestry of pain. We talk today about the direct transmission of trauma in our conversation, as well as these gaps or secrets that show up in her practice again and again. Because just because it's not spoken doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We also talk about this idea of what Freud called afterwardness, which is the way that we reprocess traumatic memories again and again from our new lived perspective. We explore what healing looks like for clients who suddenly become aware of how these hidden forces and patterns are informing their lives and what it looks like to clip those threads and set yourself free. And perhaps most poignantly, we discuss the idea of victims and aggressors and how so many of us in the grips of our own victimhood feel justified and lashing out. This is a phenomenon we can trace from our personal lives to the global stage, and it deserves our awareness. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Amazing to be with you. Thank you for joining me. And your book is beautiful. And thank you for sharing so much about yourself. I love seeing into the minds of psychotherapist i think it scratches an itch so many of us
1: (laughs) that's what you always want to know right
0: exactly my therapist he's an israeli guy actually and like oh can't we be friends like don't Mm -hmm. you want to tell me about it's such a strange thing to be in therapy to be in a one-sided relationship so i liked reading about your life
1: Thank you. Thank you for liking the book and for inviting me
0: to talk yeah. to you. Well, emotional inheritance and this sort of foundational idea that you weave throughout the book of how we live the unconscious, we live out the patterns of our parents' lives in ways that are direct and also amorphous. It feels like one of those ideas. I know that people have been doing work on this for a long time, but that is now really starting to be understood in a wide way that people are recognizing, oh, that like systemic racism, I understand how we pass these patterns on and those patterns in of themselves, right, are ancient going to the beginning of patriarchy. So do you want, will you tell us about Rachel Yehuda's research, which I'm sure some people have heard of, but maybe not everyone is familiar
1: And so the epigenetics the research and epigenetics is the biological mechanism Mm -hmm. by which trauma is transmitted from generation to generation. So what it means is that really it looks at the impact of the environment. And when we psychologists or neuroscientists talk about environment in this context, it's the psychological environment and especially trauma on the expression of genes. What that means is that it doesn't change the genes, it changes the expression of genes. And what Rachel Yehuda does is amazing research on the way trauma is transmitted from generation to generation. And what I add to it and talk about in Emotional Inheritance is the intermingling of nature and nurture, and how like, Rachel Huda really talks m- m- especially about the uh, nature part, and I add to it the nurture part, which means that the way that we see the transmission is not only in symptoms like anxiety or the, the in, in the physical expression, but actually also in content, mm-hmm. which with that one generation really knows in some unconscious ways what the other generation went th- through and the previous generations struggles become in some m- maybe mysterious ways but actually not as we talk about it we'll see how how that works part of the next generation's emotional struggle
0: right and so the biological part is when they look at Holocaust survivors, that they have lower levels of mm. cortisol, right? Like lower levels of stress hormone that allow the body to bounce back, and that that's what's being transmitted. And that includes enslaved people, war veterans, parents who experience major trauma, that this right. is, a, as you mentioned, a biological marker. And then right. your book is sort of about, I loved the, how you wrote, like many other families, our family colluded and shared the unspoken understanding that silence was the best way to erase what was unpleasant. The assumption in those days was that what you don't remember won't hurt you. Right. And your book is essentially a refutation of that, that, those, that that idea of suppression or what goes unnamed, goes unnoticed. Mm-hmm. These are the, the terrible un- myths, right?
1: Right, yeah. right. The unsaid and the unspeakable. Right. Yeah. So the book talks about, about traumas and how they pass down, about secrets. And then we see that we're actually talking about two kinds of secrets. One of them is the omission. Everything that we felt, but nobody actually told us about it, but we know it somehow. And, and the other part is really those secrets that we know and talked about, but we never let ourselves go actually remember. And Mm -hmm. so those are the two aspects of of the secrets I'm talking about. And of course, the parts that talks about secrets we keep from ourselves.
0: Do you want to talk about the secrets we keep from ourselves or the secrets that are buried in our familial Mm -hmm. lineage first?
1: Maybe let's talk about what you started talking about, really about the unspeakable, the ghosts of the unsaid and the unspeakable. Right, all those things that I think people are really interested in, and I think what they are interested in is that how uh, about the mechanism of how how does that work? How is it possible that if something happens in your history, even something you don't know about, uh, the next generation, right? I you you know about it somehow. You experience it, or you have fears of phobias, or Uh, or dreams. There are a lot of reports of dreams and nightmares related to our ancestors and trauma. And so I think that is a a big part of what talking about in in the book. And
0: when you work with people and they present and maybe they are exhibiting a pattern or a behavior and they don't understand why it's not they've struggled throughout their lives to attach it to an event. Is that where you start sort of this mm-hmm. inquiry deep into the family lineage? Or I know for you, you, you used to work with children and you you right. talk about how children are often the ones on whom the pathology is projected. And so they sort of emerge as the carrier of the truth, yeah. even though they have no idea <laughs> what's <laughs> no. happening.
1: So, you know, let me take you to the beginning, right? Um, When we talk about the ghost of the unsaid, we're talking about the inherited feelings of our parents' unprocessed trauma where uh, and the phantoms that lived inside them. We're talking about traumas that our parents and grandparents could not process, and they are transmitted to us in some raw way. And and I quote in the book uh, Holocaust Survivors, Uh, Maria Torok, Nicholas Abraham, who said, what haunts us are not the dead, but the gaps left within us by the Mm. secrets of others. And there is a whole section in the book that really speaks about those gaps, those things that we feel, but don't know what it is. A lot of that research actually started with Holocaust survivors, as you mentioned, a lot of the psychoanalysts. And later on, Uh, Even Rachel Yehuda is a, you know, is a second generation of Holocaust survivors. Children of Holocaust survivors who grew up with the feeling that something is wrong. But uh, in that generation, and especially the second generation, people at the beginning, after the war, actually didn't talk about what happened. And many Holocaust survivors, as many parents, you know, do try to protect their children from knowing and from the devastation of what really happened to them. And so they didn't tell the kids, ever, you know, anything sometimes. And the children carried some feeling that something happened. The children started having what they call symptoms. And once I heard an, an interview with Rachel Yehuda saying that that's what uh, led her, To do that research. And in the book, I call that a me search. For me, almost every chapter in the book was my own research is me search. Mm -hmm. You know, looking under the surface at what is it that I try to understand? What is it that we try to, to know? And so there are many examples in the stories in the book of those incidents where the grandchild knows something about uh, his grandfather, right? And we talk about Leonardo's chapter, for example. Uh, Leonardo feels that he's processing something and he doesn't know what it is. And slowly in the therapy, we, um, we understand where he leads us. So, And that leads me to your question about where do we start? Because the truth is that we almost never start with our grandparents or our parents history we always start first of all with what we call the presented problem the presented problem is why are you here why did you come to therapy what is it that you need that's where we begin we begin with the here and now and then and especially as a psychoanalyst i'm very interested in the unconscious in what happened to people their own history. I open my first sessions asking people uh, what what their first memory was, which gives mm. me some idea about the presented problem with what is it that you are actually looking for? What is it that you carry? And of course thinking about people's childhood. And then I add to that those ideas about the unconscious, the intergenerational unconscious. Which means that one generation lives inside the other and they share an unconscious. They communicate with each other and parents communicate with children. You know, material, emotional material that they don't necessarily are aware of or intend to communicate. And I think that that actually comes a little later. But I... I'm always aware that when I sit with a patient, I sit with more than one generation. And sometimes I sit with two
0: or three generations in the room. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload to fill me with factoids, mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain, but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much better. Freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. And your own history is is fascinating. Reminds me of a friend of mine who believes she's, you're Syrian, right?
1: A half Iranian.
0: Okay, half Syrian, half yeah. Iranian. And then you, your family went to Israel before yes. you came to the U.S. And so you, and you experience you grew up, you know, spending recess in bomb shelters, right? It's like not dissimilar to what's happening in the Mm -hmm. world now. And so you also felt acutely the collision, not only of your current experience, but the experience of your family. When you look at where we are collectively, do you feel like now at least we have the awareness to start to address some of these issues culturally, collectively, et cetera, or do you feel like we're going to be wringing this out for endless generations?
1: It is a very complicated time now, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a time where we actually process things. It's, 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 in fact, it's a time when when we act out things more than process them. And I think part of what we talk about when we talk about the process of awareness is reflection as opposed to acting out, And so, of course, there is so much acting out of aggression and so much splitting in the culture and so much, you know, so much trauma. And I'm thinking even about COVID and and the implications and to some degree thinking about the relation between what's happening in the world right now and, and the last three years and the aggression that accumulated. And, you know, that's pretty devastating. Uh, to think about, and and to think about how many years it will take us to to process that, you know. I think I read somewhere that for a nation to be able to process a war, and, you know, some people like to say to fully process, I don't believe that we could ever fully process, but to even process a war takes 50 years, Mm. and so it is very easy to destroy, and it's very, very hard to repair
0: yeah oh, it's so true. I mean processing yeah. in general is such an interesting concept, right? If you think about yeah. our bodies and and minds and their indelible con- connection, and then the way we have to move the experiences sort of through this matter, right? It's pretty wild, but do you when when you think about these these young kids who are experiencing forced migration? Um, watching this all unfold, on whether they're participating and you know whether they're sitting at home with their parents or not. Mm-hmm. How do we parent kids now in a way that we aren't sort of damning them with stuff that we should be taking care of ourselves? Like, how do we? What is the appropriate? Modulation? Like, how would you have changed your own childhood? I guess.
1: You know, if I go back to my childhood, and there is no doubt in my mind that. I grew up in a generation that uh, we're all traumatized. I grew up in Israel where there are there terror attacks and there, where there were uh, explosions. When well, in my twenties, there was you know explosions on the street. We used to, we used to. I think we created some kind of dark humor about that, about where we never had. For example, like when we met with friends, nobody wanted to take responsibility of where we go because if there is a closure, not my fault. You know, there was something very complicated and very dark in the way Mm -hmm. we grew up. And I do think, and it brings me back to emotional inheritance, that some of that is related to the Holocaust and to to the, the shadow of the Holocaust. And a lot of the things that happen in the Middle East are related to that shadow of trauma. And it creates generation after generation of traumatized people on both sides, right? Because the minute you are a victim and you have an identity of a victim, it's very hard to see when you become an aggressor. And I think that is true everywhere. And it's true about even in the United States, uh, when you think about aggression, every aggressive person has a narrative of a victim. Yes. And, and that is based on some kind of splitting and some kind of inability to see ourselves as as both and to yeah. and to know that we all of us have the potential to be both victim and victims and aggressors
0: I was just talking to Terry Real, and he's a marriage therapist, and one of his mentors is this woman, Pia Melody, and she calls that offending from the victim position. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's sort of the most benign totally. version of it in a relationship, but certainly we see it on a global scale. Like, I, you hit right. me, I'm going to blow your head off. You know, so you can never
1: hit me again. I think everything that we see in relationships, we can we can translate to, you know, wider and systems. Family is a system and countries are systems, and we can translate the same psychological awareness of yeah, I think it goes back to feeling safe and feeling like you need to protect yourself. And if somebody hurts you, as you say, you feel like a victim, and if you feel justified to hurt them back and if somebody scares you you have a narrative that you need to protect yourself and sometimes it's true sometimes you do need to protect yourself right and i think it's hard to sometimes know uh, where the line is and we fall back into a very 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 primitive defense uh, of splitting splitting between good and bad you know splitting is a very very basic ch- childhood defense mechanism right that allows us to feel that the world is safe. So if there are good people, think about fairy tales. If there are good people and bad people, then we know where to go. We know who is good and who's bad. And uh, in the book, when I talk about uh, my chapter on sexual abuse, for example, when I talk about confusion of tongues, right? what is the confusion of tongues of the sexually abused uh, people? It is the fact that a good person did something to you, someone you like touched you. And that's very often the situation. Somebody that, uh, you know, your uncle that you liked, your neighbor, your, you know, someone that was, or somebody you don't know, but who was really, really nice to you and gave you candy and told you how special you are. And so here there is a confusion of tongues between the language of tenderness that the child is speaking and seeking, and the language of perversion and sexual abuse.
0: Yeah, I thought that section of the book was really powerful. And with the way that you talked about your own experience with the man who owned the candy store, and sort of what you observed at the time, and whether he actually crossed a line or didn't, the emotional entanglement, maybe, or the emotional lines Mm -hmm. that he crossed with you and making you feel special and then alternately icky was very relatable for me as a child. I, I had that experience in different ways multiple times. And then I loved how you went into Freud's view. I'm not going to pretend to say it, but this idea <laughs> of what called how it's tra- Nachtraglichkeit.
1: That's the that's the that's the German yeah. way, but in English you're tra- <laughs> <laughs> Nachtraglichkeit. In in English it is translated to afterwardness or deferred action. Those yeah. are different, different translations. Yeah,
0: and I thought that was such a powerful idea. This idea that as adults we go, we start to mm-hmm. reprocess these memories as adults with new perspectives. Yeah. Can right. you ex- talk us through that and yeah. what that is means?
1: Yeah, I think that that. Thank you for asking that. This the, the whole idea of nachtraglichkeit is is really really important idea. and It's a Freudian idea actually. Uh, that means that early traumatic experiences are layered with new meaning throughout life. Freud was actually focused on sexual abuse when he wrote that. And he was talking about sexual abuse in childhood and that as an experience that the child does not always register as traumatic. And if you think about what we said before about uh, your experience or my experience, and I have to tell you that the sexual abuse uh, chapter is the chapter that most people told me they relate to, especially women. And I think the reason is that I, I want to say every woman, and I'll say almost every woman, even though deep inside, I think that it's actually really, really close to every woman experienced some, thing that it was related to sexual boundary violation. Yes. And, and I think some of those experiences were very, very confusing And so I think when when going back to that idea of the afterwardness, uh, Freud was saying that really when that happens to you, you know, you feel that something is wrong, but and you're overwhelmed with something, but you you can't really process it or even make sense of it as a child. And I think that brings us, of course, to the idea of how do we think about memory? What is memory? How do we process, right? How do we remember in the chapter I say, I, you know, I didn't even know did it actually happen, did it not happen, what happened. And as time passes, the traumatic experience is actually reprocessed. And in every developmental phase, the child revisits the abuse from a different angle and with different understanding, of course, because they're in a different age. So for example, when you become a teenager and then an adult or when you have sex for the first time, or when you have a child, or when your child gets to the, the age that you have been sexually abused, all of that, every time you reprocess it, uh, process it again and again and again, uh, in, each moment, in, in each moment, the abuse will be reprocessed from a slightly different perspective, right? Yeah. And so that yeah. is, and I think that's a, a really, really important, uh, it's a really uh, important idea that applies not only to sexual abuse, to every experience we have in life. You know, people go over their divorces, their separations, their, their traumatic birth. They're like even things that are small T traumas. We reprocess and reprocess and reprocess throughout life.
0: Yeah. No. And it's so interesting too, because, you know, I think for women, for that sort of sexual boundary crossing, when it can feel overwhelming to quote Freud or confusing or dirty, but it also creates this idea of over responsibility, I think, for children, Mm. right? That you liked it or you inspired it or you wanted that to happen in some way that then often the healing can really maybe only come. Like for me as an, a parent now, and I don't have a daughter, mm-hmm. but I think about my children. And I'm yeah. like, oh, oh, like, wow, like they are little. They're not responsible for what they right. compel in adults.
1: You look at them and you say, oh, so it's not possible that I was responsible. It's
0: not right? possible, exactly. Right. Yet, as a young child, you feel right. incredibly powerful.
1: Yeah. inappropriately
0: powerful as sort of the siren or this object. Right. And you mentioned, you know, within the the candy store, and this has been my experience too, where I'm conscious of what happened. I didn't, it didn't really come to my awareness until I was an adult when I did MDMA actually. And mm. I was aware of this individual and I was aware, very conscious of another encounter that we had, but it emerged for me and I was like, oh, Shit, like that happened. And I don't know exactly what happened. And yeah. I've kind of decided with my therapist that it doesn't really matter. The important part is that idea of over responsibility and working with that.
1: Right. And, and guilt, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. Do you feel yeah. like it's important in your work with patients that they really understand exactly like, the truth? Or as, as Freud says, the afterwardness right. changes the perception and the story anyway? Right.
1: I think that th- there is never one truth in our mind. There are truths, you know, yeah. and many kinds of truths. And every time we'll meet a different angle of our truth. And I think that in general, I think it is important to create narratives and tell stories. But I think that when it comes to sexual abuse, I think mm-hmm. one of the most common experience is the confusion right? The confusion of tongues, the confusion of reality, the confusion of did it happen? Did it not happen? Maybe I made it up. Maybe I wanted it. Maybe I, right? So that is the thing that is much more important in that specific situation than creating one specific narrative. I think for some people, the narrative is important just because it allows them like what you you do with, with your children, right? Through your children, you look at it and you say, oh, so I wasn't responsible and this is what I felt. But the narrative is not a narrative about what happened. The narrative is more a, a narrative of how I feel, how mm. I felt, right?
0: Yeah. How
1: Like something happened to me.
0: You know, it's interesting just in the context, too, of talking about what doesn't get processed getting moved onto future generations. So it's also this Mm -hmm. question of as we clean up our own emotional lives, what are we telegraphing? Is it just Mm -hmm. the stuff that we... Refuse to touch, or that we feel like if we just let moss grow over it, it goes away. I guess there's hey, listen. No nothing way. goes
1: away. Nothing goes away. That's <laughs> a bad news. <laughs> <laughs> nothing goes away. I think what we want, what we hope, is that we we you know the transmission is of something that is processed and not some again some raw material that that first of all the children need to start processing, and and second they sometimes feel like that uh, they're crazy that they feel that, right? It's like, what is yeah. it that I feel? I don't even know. I don't even have a narrative r- uh, related to that. And so I think those are, and, and at the same time, you know, sometimes uh, our own trauma is, is too painful for us to, f- to process in ways that, uh, or, or let's say our, our parents' trauma was too painful for them to process in ways that will satisfy us. And we'll say, you know what? My mother processed her trauma so well, and I am liberated. That right. is never the case. That's
0: never happen. Right? Well, then so we our have children would attach. have nothing to work on and life yeah, would be boring. Exactly. No, but and it can skip generations, you know, not to dwell too long on that chapter, but that was a fascinating and very sad story about the child speaking of the the child who becomes the sick member of the family representing what's happening in the family as right. a unit. And then you reconnected with her decades later right. and found out exactly what had happened. But that was the grandmother, right? right? Sewing this yes. idea that she had been molested, that this little girl had been molested by her right. brother. And then it ended right. up being her grandmother's completely right. unconcealed story. Yes. Like she wasn't conscious of what she was creating in this family but she ended up tearing the family apart
1: exactly and then you the, the, i <laughs> you know i think that is a story that speaks to people all, for many many reasons and i think one of them is the gap between the conscious and the unconscious right mm. the feeling is that And I think that gap is about, is everywhere. That gap between the conscious and the unconscious is everywhere. It is in that chapter that the grandmother, and I don't know if you remember that part when she says to her granddaughter, I I don't want you to carry my pain. I don't want you to carry my trauma. But in fact, unconsciously, what she does is that she pushes that trauma into her granddaughter's mind. And so we see, and and it's interesting, you know, because I think that what I I focus in that chapter is the the unique intergenerational aspect of sexual abuse, Mm. uh, which I do think is unique in the way that each generation overwhelms the next generation and inflicts the drama of boundary violation of their own A boundary violation and their own sexual trauma. And I think that's what happened to Lara in that chapter. And going back to what you said before about the identified patient, uh, thinking about families and who comes to therapy. And so the identified patient really is the one member of the family that usually comes to therapy and that seems like the sick member of the family. And I think those, uh, very often, those are one of the children but not always sometimes it's one of the parents but usually it's one of the children and they those children carry and express the symptoms of the problems they express the problems of the family as a unit so you see we project as families we tend to project our problems into one member of the family with the That's family, right? P- project the pathology of the family, I would even exaggerate and say, right? And that person would usually be the one that comes to therapy and the parents will say, uh, right, I used to work with children and I describe it in that chapter that the pa- I had the first session even before I meet the child, I met the parents and I talked to them and usually there is something that you see that the parents tell you that there is a problem in the family, Mm-hmm. And that child, and it's often the, the most sensitive child, right? Carries that problem. They become the the, the problematic, the problematic member of of the family,
0: mm. the symptom carrier. Exactly, is how the you des- describe them, which is such a an amazing idea. I mean, not it's not great, obviously, but it it is like a fascinating way to sort of get under the hood of what's actually happening and showing up. And it speaks to sort of our profound interdependence and the fact that no child is created anew, right? Like we're all part of this much larger tapestry and carry really long lines of story and unconscious Mm -hmm. matter.
1: And that's what you said before, you know, about, uh, you know, there is an illusion of separateness. Like we people are separate and each member is separate. And when you think about families, and again, not only families, cultures, uh, countries, and people in general, we're not as separated as we seem. Mm-hmm. And so, and you could see that in the system of the family that we're not separate. We carry things for each other. We project things onto each other. We express things for each other. We work as a system, right?
0: I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really, I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years, You can upload digital prints and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. I don't know who said this, and maybe multiple people have said this, but there's that idea too, that if you can really heal something, maybe process something big, that you are healing it seven generations in both directions that there are ways to knit together some of mm-hmm. these painful yeah. holes
1: yeah you certainly change something in other people in your family when you change right yeah. so i think i think often when people say i need to change my mother i need to change my father and what we see is that when you change yourself they have right we are like a puzzle they have to to adjust and People change in response to other people's change.
0: Which is also kind of um, scary, I think. And I'm sure people have had this experience in therapy when when your partner starts to react to this different version that you've, or this this shedding, I'd almost call it, right? Because I think for many people, therapy can be a process of getting closer to who you are and you're exposing that new vellum or that new skin. And it's a little disconcerting how... And do you feel like the reaction from the family primarily is like an urge for homeostasis? Mm. Like, can we bring go back to how we were in our yeah. dysfunction? Yeah. You know, there's so many interesting stories in your book about children who are living either the, the sadness of their parent or they've been controlled by the sadness of their parent to potentially mm-hmm. weaponize against the other parent, et cetera. And so as they right. start to undo that, is it just an internal process of finding the strength to be like I love you, mom, and I can't carry mm. your depression anymore. I need to have a relationship with my father. Or actually, maybe let's talk yeah, about that's that. That's a good. Story. That's a good.
1: it's a good question. You're talking about Alice, yes. right?
0: Yes, the one yeah. who doesn't want to have, you know, has been alienated from her father. Doesn't want. Is very ambivalent about having a child, and essentially excommunicated her dad at the behest of her mom's victimhood? I don't know if that's appropriate, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, I think, first of all, you know, the book is really about families and about attachment. So in every in every story, there is a different angle on, on attachment and how we are connected. Uh, and, and again, different perspectives on how we are connected to our family members. And sometimes and many times there is a lot of pain in that connection. So for example, I think the Alice story is a story of loyalty It's a girl that is loyal to her mother and her mother's pain is what she is trying to heal. It brings us back to the idea that we all want to have happy parents, right? Mm -hmm. And Alice's mother, uh, I I would say that her way to control everybody in her life, but especially Alice is with her pain, through her pain and she's traumatized and Alice really loves her and and she loves alice so it's not right we don't question the love and i think that's what you differentiated and i think mm-hmm. you differentiated it for a good reason because we could look at love and attachment and trauma and they and they coexist they don't come instead of each other so it's this is a story about love and connection between a mother and a daughter and the mother really doesn't want a daughter to separate and she doesn't want the daughter to belong to anyone else including the father so you mm-hmm. see if we go back to that idea that we talked about before about the gap between conscious and unconscious consciously the mother wants her daughter to have the best life right and mm-hmm. grow and have her own family and fall in love but unconsciously every other every person out there is a threat and everything is symbolizes the daughter choosing the father instead of the mother. So she doesn't really want unconsciously the daughter to have anyone else. And I think that brings us back in this and this story actually talks also about envy mm-hmm. and about a topic that we tend not to talk about because it's very painful and we and against the culture idea that mothers are only good. It doesn't mean that mothers are not good. And again, uh, there is a conscious wish uh, uh, that the daughter will have the best life. But the mother is actually envious at her daughter. And the reason she's envious at her is that she has her as a mother. That mother never had a good mother. And I think those brave mothers who come to therapy and those are mothers who were not mothered And when they come to therapy and able to really, really touch and discuss the deep pain around not being mothered and how difficult it is for them to see that their daughters have a mother, they have them as a mother, they have a good mother. And and the envy that actually spoils it, spoils the good mothering. Mm. And I think that is a very complicated concept to put it, but it is so forbidden, right, in so many ways to actually yes. discuss mothers' envy of their own daughters.
0: I think it's such a, a powerful and important idea. And I think that it's something that we imbibe subconsciously, you know, again, going to that gap and then feel there's guilt, right? Mm-hmm. This is something that my mom and I talk about openly, which I think. Is both of those things. She certainly was not mothered. She had a, an abusive, negligent mother. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't, it's like she doesn't really understand what that would have felt like, certainly. But, and then it comes down to sort of the unlived lives of many women. Yeah. Like we're, we're really shaking this out. We're almost at a point where we're recognizing how arbitrary these choices are. And there's certainly that, like I didn't have that opportunity that whatever we do might be right. an indictment on the choices that our own mothers made because right. daughters are supposed to t- stay attached. I mean, this is all I think it's yeah. a cultural delusion, but daughters are supposed to stay attached and be like their mothers and b- little boys are supposed to separate and be like their fathers. These are dangerous ideas, I
1: think. These are, ideas. A- yes, exactly. these are dangerous ideas. Exactly. These are dangerous ideas and, and they're really based on some gender binary, right? And oh yeah. And patriarchy. Like, yes. Totally, it's, totally. it's,
0: it's really, but it is insidious mm. and it's hard to, to break those patterns. Right, right. On all levels, even on those ideas, this idea of good mothering, right, right. and the pressure right. that's put yeah. on mothers.
1: That is a really good point, you know, because when we talk about our parents' trauma, we don't mean that our parents were bad parents, right? And because, Never. and especially, I mean, when you and I speak, we are parents too, right? And we know, and I know, in uh, in the book, I I reference the research that says that a good enough parent. Is tuned in to their child 30% of the time, only 30%. That means that 70% of the time we are misattuned. And yep. the rest of the time we try to correct and we try to repair. And I think for so many of us, that is such a relief that we could do that. And that what is important, what's important is really not to be perfect, but the ability to repair the ability to come back, the ability to talk, right? The ability to, to re find each other.
0: Yeah, no, but it's interesting. It's such a, it's, Incredible research. It's it's Tronic, right? Is right. That- Tronic okay, and Cohen. Yeah. Yeah. Tronic Tronic and Cohen and, and the videos and, and uh-huh. people have probably seen this even if they're not aware of it. But the baby who's who sort of loses the mother looks away and the baby becomes very upset. Right. That's and Beatrice Bibi,
1: think- which is like amazing research on on uh, from Columbia University on ma- usually most of her uh, research is mothers and babies. Mothers, yeah. But-
0: as, as obviously applies to fathers, but of I think that what's been lost or where we're sort of stuck culturally is this idea, as you mentioned, of perfection or that we have to be completely attuned to our children and to, um, but, but the research, when people know it, isn't opposite, but it is like, no, the actual power is the breaking connection right. and the reconnection and the breaking connection and the reconnection and the exactly. durability and resilience of relationships where you realize, oh, i can I can fall away from this person and come back, and that it is not dependent on this unsevered perfect alignment and attunement, which is obviously possible. Right. Um, and you
1: know, in the videos themselves, I don't know if, you, if you've if you ever seen the, the Beatrice Beebe's videos of the infant research. It's incredible. And what you see, because it's a split screen, so you see on one half the baby and one half the mother, you see the moments of attunement and misattunement. And you see those parents who are really, really, really anxious about being bad parents and really easily feel rejected by the baby. And baby, I mean like three months old baby that turns their head away and the parent looms in and tries to bring the, the, the baby back. But mm-hmm. the truth is that the baby moves the head away because the baby is becomes dysregulated at, at times. And overwhelmed,
0: or, or, right? And, yeah.
1: So they need to regulate. So they move their heads away. And the parent could experience that because a good enough parent is a parent that they believe is a parent that is is the, the the baby loves, they feel that as a rejection and they feel like, oh no, I'm a bad parent right now. So they go back into the, the baby's face, which dysregulates the baby even more. And then the baby becomes even more distressed. And so you, then you see the vicious cycle that we could see. We see that in romantic relationships, right? I mean, you yeah. we could, we can could imagine that, that somebody moves the head away and you're like, no, don't leave me. He doesn't like me. He, right. And then you loom in, in ways that becomes even more dysregulating. And that is something that we, as parents, and I think what they do when they help parents in therapy is to really say, the baby will come back. The baby has only you. Yeah, you, They can't survive <laughs> without you. Right. They'll come back. Wait.
0: Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly – They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day... Treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code thread at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. You know, as so often happens, research, it doesn't get into the into people's minds with sort of the speed that it does. And so I think so many parents are left feeling like, if I don't meet all of my children's needs, if I am not there, mm-hmm. if I mess this up and get it wrong, my child will be in therapy for the rest of their life. I think everyone should be in therapy. <laughs> I think life is really hard and complicated and – there's no version of avoiding pain or needing help processing, but it is, I don't know, maybe we're past that cultural perception of, of therapy and pathology. The, but stigma, there's some, right? the, the stigma, stigma, right? The stigma, right. Yeah. I
1: think something something really special happened, and maybe that's the silver lining of, of COVID uh, in the culture, where... Uh, you know, mental health and trauma, and all of these things used to be things that are loaded with with stigma. And I think they're less and less. I think there was something about all of us experiencing something so horrific together, and a lot of uh, conversation about mental health and And I think obviously, uh, there is something very devastating about the fact that so many kids are are, anxious and depressed and something really bad that's a huge mental health crisis yeah and I th- and at the same time uh, the only one one little uh, you know piece of hope in that is that it allows us to really talk about mental health yeah. and process our previous traumas as well
0: yeah well I think it's done an incredible job too of Reminding people that these are all interwoven, complicated systems that start sort of with that interior relationship with yourself and then move out family, neighborhood, co- you know, culture as mentioned to to world, like th- this interconnectedness and how you can't, it's like one butterfly flaps its wings, right? And it affects yeah. us all. But that... In a way, when we heal ourselves and, and process that, it's our work for the collective. It is our responsibility to the wider world, even though it feels like insular or selfish or self-involved. Right. You but know, that- it sounds
1: like it is a like a, there is a conflict between uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna fix the world or I'm gonna fix myself, right? Mm-hmm. And to some degree those are interconnected. And I think that's what you're saying, right? That it's not just we're activists. We want to we make this world a better world for our children. And we want to fix everybody else and everything else. And to some degree, we have to start with ourselves. We have yes. to start with saying, you know what? I'll do both. I don't do only that. And everything that happens out there might be related to me too. And I'm going to start here. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that it goes to that really beautiful idea that I know is hard for us to admit or personalize, but in some ways I'm a victim and in some ways I'm an aggressor. And so how do I start to understand that and parse that and integrate that so that I get the healing that I need and deserve and then simultaneously stop projecting my wounds, my open gaping wounds onto other people and can engage with the world from- well healed scars, right? And understanding yeah. and empathy rather than hurt. And- yeah.
1: yeah. I love that. I love that because I think this is exactly it, right? That split between I'm only a victim and not owning the parts of us that is angry. Victims are always angry, right? When something happens to me, it makes me angry too. So I'm never just good or bad, Right. And I think that's what you're saying, that yeah. we really need to think about how we project our badness onto other people.
0: Right. right. And how we assign it. Because I think one of the really powerful and beautiful parts of your book is, is even thinking of that sexual abuse story with the grandmother who manages to not intentionally tear apart her child's life and her grandchild's life but she loves her grandmother. Her grandmother didn't do it out of malice or malevolence right. or quote-unquote badness. Like, there, these binaries don't exist. And so I think, too, for us to be able to hold those nuanced yeah.
1: ideas
0: and throughout the book to not see, like, oh, that ba- that father who had an affair and abandoned his daughter is bad, but to recognize that was bad behavior – there's love there. There's a lot of goodness, etc. Um, I thought the book was really powerful in its telling of people's full humanity. Thank you. You talk about, and I was I was thinking about this because I was talking to a friend who was an unwanted child. She's ten years younger than mm-hmm. her siblings, and she was an accident. accident. I don't know if she was. I don't know if she was actually unwanted, but she struggles with depression and. In some ways, sort of this like failure to thrive, failure to launch. And I thought it was really beautiful that you named that. That was such a painful story. The unwelcomed
1: baby. The unwelcomed baby. And you
0: talked about this paper from 1929, The Unwelcome Child and His Death Instinct. Yeah, can you yeah. talk a little bit about how that can manifest? Because that's obviously like quite pervasive. There are a lot of babies right. who were accidents, right? And
1: you know that that's a, a paper that uh, Senator Ferency, who who was it's the guy that also wrote the Confusion of Tongues, uh, Freud's uh, student, wrote, and he was very controversial at uh, at that time. And what he was talking about is that he noticed uh, in his patients who were unwelcome children that they had an urge to die and more suicidal thoughts and more connection with 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 wishes with death wishes and what he was really talking about and i'll I, I elaborate that in that chapter and i want to say this is not a chapter about uh, you know i don't believe that every every child that was unwelcomed would have suicidal thoughts. But we do see that sometimes children, babies who were unwelcomed, keep being unwelcomed later in life. And John's story, that specific story, is about a boy who really, his mother did not want him. She already had four children. He was the fifth. And she really considered having an abortion. And she didn't. And uh, then he was born. And he was born into a very unwelcomed world unwelcoming world and felt unwelcomed everywhere he went and in therapy we're really talking there if you remember there is a a, a scene there where he comes to uh, therapy and he by accident comes 30 minutes earlier and he started feeling unwelcomed like i'm not opening the door he sits in the welding room and i don't come out to welcome him into my office and when i open the door he says did you expect me and I hear it as I see her smiling. I hear it as like, am I, think about expecting a baby. Did you expect me? And we start talking about that. And of course, one of the things that we focus on, and the, the book is focused on is secrets from before we were born. He didn't, He never knew the story as many many other people who do not actually know that they were, they were an accident. I, the truth is that I believe that those who do know and know that they were unwelcomed are doing worse than those that don't know. Right. Because it does mean that that unwelcome baby thing continued throughout life and that Mm -hmm. they have not only the feeling, but sometimes families actually tell the people, you know, we didn't actually want you, you were an accident and an unwelcomed one, you know, (laughs) And I think that is very damaging, obviously. Uh, But there is still even those who were unwelcome for the whole pregnancy or the beginning of their lives, and especially the beginning of their lives. We know how important the beginning of their Mm -hmm. life is. In John's stories, it's very clear that his mother ignored him and Mm -hmm. really, really didn't want him. And then there was this horrible accident Uh, in his family and think about accidental pregnancy and accidents that happened after where his oldest sister dies and he is unconsciously really blamed for that because the mother wanted only four kids and now she has four kids but Mm -hmm. it's not the four kids she wanted and there is a feeling that he should have been the one who dies and not her and of course there are a lot of nuances to that story and It's a very dramatic story that explores and unpacks the idea of being unwanted.
0: Yeah. But I thought what was so beautiful about sort of the healing that occurred there was when he talks to his brother and Mm -hmm. his brother validates him, you know, because in part of this unwantingness or feeling unwanted, John takes complete responsibility for all of his emotions throughout his life and over responsibility for other people's emotions. Right. And then his brother says, oh, you know, and he was like, I was too young. I, I was a baby when the sister died. So I didn't experience the grief. And he was like, no, you were the, his brother is like, you were the one, you were the one who was abandoned. And right. you are the one who, your experience breaks my heart. And Right, right. He said, you was- know,
1: some people have, so, have some things and they were taken and some people never have. And he tells his brother, you actually never had anything, which mm. is much more devastating than having and losing.
0: Yes. And I thought that was really beautiful and and the complexity of what's happening in people's lives, you know. So not only was he an unwelcome baby, but then he has parents who are in grief and aren't available on any level. So thank you for your book. I thought it was really beautiful. And, and as mentioned, I love reading about your life too. I hope you write more books.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs>
0: wanted to leave you with a line in Galit's book Emotional Inheritance that is so beautiful and really is the promise of what happens when we do this work. She writes it is only when we process our own sorrow that we can offer a truthful space of mutual vulnerability and emotional honesty a place where we can recognize the other and don't try to know better to fix or give optimistic advice instead we are available to be with, listen, and bear our own pain with the pain of another human. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at thealisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.